0: Hey, what's up, guys, and welcome into episode four of the Landscape Photography Show. I'm super excited about today's episode. Not only do I love talking to photographers, but I love talking to landscape, like outdoor nature photographers that really inspired me when I first started out in photography. And today's episode is one of those photographers. This is with Sarah Marino. And I I really admire Sarah's work because it's something that I really suck at as a photographer. And that's like the little intimate detail types of photographs. And she is so good at those. Not only that, but she's really good at explaining how she goes about the process. We're also going to get into... A little bit of nature's first principles, things that are going on right now in a movement of how photographers should be ambassadors to the locations that they're actually going out and photographing so that a lot of people can go and visit those responsibly and not damage those locations. It's also a message to us photographers, if you love shooting and you're listening, of do you share locations? Do you invite other people to go to those places that you've shot or found? And, and how do you determine what is shareable and what is not shareable? The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. All right, guys, we have Sarah Marino on the podcast today. Sarah, we've talked a few times, and I just want to start off with probably the most important question I have, and that's how are the cats today?
1: Oh, well, we only have one of the cats left, unfortunately. Oh,
0: no. Um,
1: But she's doing super well. So we had two kitties who we traveled a lot with, and I posted a lot of photos on social media of both of them. But one of them passed away after a series of strokes about two years ago. Um, We miss her a lot. But the other kitty, Apple, is doing really well, and she... Uh, is getting ready for our next trip up to the Pacific Northwest, where she'll be living with us in our airstream for a couple of weeks. So that should be a lot of fun. Uh, We're really lucky that we uh, were able to get both of them to travel with us, starting at like age 11. So taking these two kind of elderly kitties and saying we're going to travel full-time and having them agree to it was pretty awesome. So, uh, But now we're traveling just part-time. And living in southwest Colorado. So they get a, or she gets a little bit of the house and a little bit of the travel.
0: Well, that's not how I expected the first question to go <laughs> off.
1: <laughs> but do you want to re ask a different one?
0: <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Does okay. Apple have her own Instagram account? No. You're against that.
1: Oh well, I started one for yeah. for the two cats, and then Gildy passed away. So <laughs> the, that's it wasn't exactly my vision. I'm like, my cat photos are going to be more popular on Instagram than my <laughs> my landscape and nature photos. But no, I don't just don't have the time. I don't have time to post my own nature photos on Instagram. So the whole cat thing was just too much.
0: Who loves the cats more, you or Ron?
1: That was one of the things that brought us together, actually. The first trip that we did in 2011 together, uh, we did fall colors for a week in Colorado together, kind of totally unplanned. We were supposed to meet a friend. He ended up not participating in that part of the trip, but a later part. And really the only thing that Ron had any interest in about me that entire first week was my cats. So we bonded initially over the cats and then – The test was the one that we have right now. She's very sweet, but pretty standoffish. And he ended up earning her love instantly. So that was a good, like once he met her, she's like, I like this guy. So we like the cats equally, I would say.
0: (laughs) All right. You're very well known for photographing like smaller detail shots Intimate scenes, if you will. How do you go about scouting those smaller scenes and landscape shots?
1: Well, I I think that talking about my general philosophy about nature photography is probably a better place to start just because Mm -hmm. it then flows into my interests. So, uh, uh, sometime this year, I wrote a post about my style for the Nature Photographers Network. So if anybody wants to read more about this, they can check out that article. But my whole philosophy really boils down to the idea of slowing down and wandering around. So my time outside is really spent exploring as much as possible. I rarely have a set agenda. And a lot of different types of nature photography interest me. So I'm interested in small scenes, which I'll get to, uh, grand landscapes, if the conditions are right, black and white photography, photographing abstract subjects or natural subjects in an abstract way. So all of those things interest me and I really go out into nature to see what might catch my eye and that is really through the process of wandering around. So if I'm going on a hike, I always want to take that process slow because I might see some really interesting things along the way so that I'll allow myself the time to stop if I see something that I find interesting. Uh, so in particular for small scenes, when I'm out in nature, I spend a lot of time just observing my surroundings and I've started to try to think more like a naturalist. So if, if a naturalist were explaining a place or giving a talk about a place, they'd talk about the the trees and the plants and the wildlife and the 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 interesting things about the ecology of the place, uh, how a set of mountains formed or how a desert formed or the, the natural history of the geology of the place. And so I've tried to think more of like a naturalist when I visit a place, really learning about the location that I'm visiting because those things all feed into giving me ideas. And I think once I understand a place more, I see a lot more opportunities. So the, learning about a place and, and observing what the surroundings that, that are around you, I think are really important. Uh, I already mentioned slowing down, but I think that's another thing that I find to be really helpful. If you don't have an agenda or a really firm agenda and you have time to just explore visually and physically, uh, the place that you're visiting, that can be really helpful in identifying opportunities. Um, uh, I also try to collect a lot of ideas just by by thinking about what I'm seeing. So I'm writing an article right now about this process, like how to to specific some practical tips on how to have this approach to photography. And one of the places that I'm talking about is Death Valley. So if I were to walk out into a playa. I would be observing, I'd be looking on the ground, I'd be looking out in front of me at the plant to see what different kinds of plants are around, observing patterns in the rocks, like just trying to find all the details that could eventually be interesting for a photograph. Um, And then finally, uh, just doing a lot of experimentation. So two thirds of my photographs of small scenes don't work out just because they, like I'm trying to photograph a subject that I've never photographed before. And I just want to see, does it work best with load up the field or, or uh, everything in focus, or is it best to get close or far away or try to frame it with something else? So it's just really just seeing what might work for photography and then just practicing in the field. So those are some of the things that Characterize my approach to scouting small scenes. Uh, it's really, I think it really c- comes down to slowing down and taking the time to observe your surroundings and then experimenting once you find something interesting.
0: Yeah. In terms of the depth of field topic, I think a lot of people think of small scenes as like a macro shot with a lot of blurred background. What goes into your workflow of trying to decide like, does this deserve a blurred background or does it not?
1: Well, the first thing I'll mention, just because you said uh, macro. Okay. One of the most common questions I get about my small scenes is what lens do I use? And the assumption is almost always that I'm using a macro lens. Sure. And that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions about my portfolio of work I use every lens in my bag to photograph what I would consider a small scene. Uh, so that includes something like a 16 to 35 wide-angle lens. Which uh, one of the photos that comes to mind is a, a big patch of ice on a lake with some cracks and some bubbles. So a 16 35 really helps bring in that entire scene. Um, to something like a 24-105 kind of mid-range or wide-angle to mid-range telephoto. So that's a really versatile lens. Um, It doesn't get nearly as close as a macro lens, but it still is really helpful to, like if I'm photographing a patch of plants, that might be the lens that I would choose because I don't want to get too close, but I I want to be able to tightly frame a scene. Um, And then I have a hundred millimeter macro lens, which is really handy for getting very close to very small subjects. And that's often really useful for small plants or very tiny subjects like Ron and I, Ron, my husband, who is also a nature photographer, we were recently in the Arizona desert and we were photographing very tiny patches of petrified wood that look crazy and abstract once you get up close to them. So in that case, a macro lens is really helpful because you can get very close. And then uh, finally, a telephoto lens. So my favorite lens is probably my 100 to 400 millimeter lens. And in that case, you can stand, you can be a little far away from your subject, but still get pretty close visually. Uh, So let's say that I was out photographing fall colors, and I wanted to photograph just one sprig of Aspen leaves. That could be a really handy lens because I would have a really wide focal range to work with, but I, and I could get more distance than I maybe could with a hundred to 400 or with a hundred millimeter macro lens. So I I'll mention that before I talk about the, the depth of field issue, because um, I think that every lens in a bag can be handy for these kinds of photos. So, Um, And can you remind me specifically what your initial question was since I got off topic?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's no problem. I actually use like a 70 to 200 for most of my like smaller scenes. So that rings true for me too. But it's like when you step up to a scene, what's your like mind frame or workflow of deciding whether or not to add like a blurred background or or what's your process with depth of field though, deciding what to add to the background?
1: Okay. Uh, So when I'm photographing small scenes, I I think my photos fall into a couple of categories. So first would be portraits of plants and trees. The next would be abstract renditions of natural subjects. And then um, finally would be like a more traditional macro type scene. Uh, like a really like a close up of a single flower or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and also what Alex Noriega calls epic intimates, so expansive scenes with interesting light, but often without a sky. Um, so I think those are all things that fall into the the category of small scenes for me uh, with plants and flowers and trees. I almost always think both in terms of like. Everything being sharp and then having a lot of stuff being blurred. Um, so that I see both opportunities for both. Um, the thing about working with low depth of field is that it's really challenging. Uh, that it's when you're thinking about having maybe blurry elements in front of your subject and blurry elements behind your subject, getting everything to line up can sometimes take a lot of time. So in that case, I usually My workflow includes a lot of experimentation, which means that I'm hand-holding my lens. So my camera and my lens. And just standing in front of a subject and experimenting to see if I can get some framing that works. And if I have enough light, then just photographing without a tripod at, at say, F2.8 or F4. Um, And that means taking like 100 photos of my subject, just getting closer, changing the focus point, because that's another thing with when you're working with really small subjects, minute changes in the focus point can have a tremendous impact Mm -hmm. on the, the result of the photo. So uh, getting closer to the subject, moving further away, changing the focus point, changing the aperture slightly because sometimes a really thin slice of focus works. Sometimes you want a little bit more Uh, and then seeing what I like. And I just take a lot of photos in that kind of situation so that I can look at the results when I get home so that I'm not making a choice when I'm in the field. Uh, So generally for low depth of field, I'm usually working with plants or trees. So something, some kind of living foliage, uh, because I find that those are great subjects for the low depth of field. Um, Sometimes I'll find a more stationary subject like a rock or something like that, that I want to try with low depth of fields. But for those subjects, I usually want everything in focus. Like I'm trying to think through my portfolio to think if I even have a a photo that's of a non-plant that's load up the field. And I can't think of an example off the top of my head. Um, So in the cases where I want full depth of field, uh, the three things are really handy for my personal workflow. Um, The first is having a camera that offers touch to focus. So I use Canon's uh, mirrorless, the Canon R, and you can touch to focus on the LCD screen, which makes focus stacking so much easier. Uh, And then I do focus stack. So. Um, if I'm photographing a scene that I feel like I want a lot of depth of field, but I know that I can't get that in a single exposure, then I'll take anywhere from 2 to 10 ex- exposures. So not moving anything except for the focus point. And then I'll take those files later and blend them in hel- helicon focus. Um, so those are two completely different approaches So, for the low depth of field, it's much more around experimentation and taking lots of photos and hand-holding, moving my body back and forth versus the having everything in focus approach is much more technically refined. So, I'm a lot more careful about my framing. So, with a composition like that, I'm using a tripod. I'm really careful about my framing. I usually take only one set of files and I'm really careful to make sure that they're very high quality. So it's diametrically opposed in terms of process.
0: Do you think the research to landscapes, like you mentioned in the first answer, slowing down and really figuring out what's around you in nature, is that research kind of a lost art right now in photography?
1: I think it's there's actually been a bit of a resurgence, it, or at least I've found a community of people who are more interested in that approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been part of a Fall Colors forum recently because uh, since we're in the middle of fall or at the start of fall, and people are so obsessed about specific locations, like can you give me directions to these very specific trees, or can you give me directions to this very specific grand landscape? And for me, I think that takes the fun out of photography, actually. Like one of the things that I've been really trying to do is get away from having a checklist. Mm -hmm. So my only checklist is recreating a photo that I screwed up in previous years (laughs) or a scene that I saw that I want to try in a different season. Um, So – for this fall, I have a list of roads and hikes that I want to try. But beyond that, I don't get more specific than that. And uh, I don't really do any research ahead of time about the place I'm going other than like looking at maps and reading about trails. I don't look at other people's photos. I don't look up the iconic photo spots because I really want to go to a place with an open mind. And I think that that kind of approach of just more seeing what the landscape is offering and learning about the place. I feel like there's a bit of a resurgence of that approach. Um, At least I'm seeing more people writing about it and talking about it than say when I started with landscape photography. I think the mentality very much when I started was chase the light. Like that's the style that works for landscape photography. You have Big iconic compositions in mind, and you're chasing weather, you're chasing interesting lighting conditions, uh, you're photographing right around sunrise and sunset. And I don't feel like it's there were obviously voices uh, and people doing other things, but I think there's, you, I feel like there's a little bit more of a balance between the style that I'm talking about and kind of the the chase the light
0: Which feeling or chase you the better? spots.
1: Oh, for sure the 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 what the just wandering or slowing down and wandering around for sure. Uh, I am so much happier when I don't have a checklist because I I'm definitely one of those people that struggles with expectations. Like if I have expectations for a situation and then I'm disappointed, that it affects my like my experience. And once I stopped having the checklist and stopped having expectations, I enjoyed nature photography a lot more and saw and see a lot more opportunities. So for me, like thinking outside of sunrise and sunset outside of having what expecting to be able to photograph specific spots during a trip, like I'm so much happier now that I don't do that as often.
0: Do you think like the disappointment sometimes that people find when you go about, the process of finding a specific location, wanting to get to that exact spot and it not being exactly what you saw on Instagram or, or Facebook leading to kind of the non-checklist workflow? Uh,
1: <laughs> I don't, I think it's such a personal, it's what drives people personally. I think it's also a lot easier when I'm doing this almost full time. So my i've been splitting my time between consulting and uh, consulting with nonprofits and foundations and f- doing nature photography as a career for the last 10 years and i've finally figured out how to make photography work so i'm going to at the end of this year i'm going to be full time for the first time ever congrats and- thank you it's exciting for sure i'm I'm so looking forward to having my mind just focused on one thing professionally uh, but the like the ability to be out as much as out as like you and I are it I think it gives you a certain amount of freedom that somebody who only has two weeks a year mm-hmm. has so I think that that I'm I don't want this to come off as judging anybody's process because it's not, and I feel very privileged to be able to be out in nature a lot because being out a lot gives you the freedom to say, "I'm just going to photograph this aspen tree for three hours and <laughs> not focus on other things." Like that's a lot of people who who pursue nature for photography don't have that privilege, sure. so. I think that that drives a lot of it is just having the availability of time and then living really close to a landscape that I enjoy photographing. Like I can go walk around the trails in my neighborhood and photograph, and a lot of people just don't have access to that kind of easy access to nature. So that I don't think that directly answers your question, but it describes kind of how I got from point A to point B.
0: No, it, it answered it totally, and I think that's a lot of people's story is – not having as much time or having a lot of time to go out and photograph a place where you're either very familiar with or you spend a week out there because you have no idea what's going on in in a certain landscape.
1: Well, you just went to Joshua Tree, right? Yeah. What was your your process?
0: I found it incredibly difficult to photograph Joshua Tree just because it's unlike anything i had ever shot before, including Death Valley, um, just because I feel like the, the floor of the landscape is totally different than what I experienced in Death Valley. And I'll start with that just because of foreground work, you know, my style is a little bit different than yours while I do shoot, you know, smaller, intimate scenes, I don't do as much. I work a lot more with foregrounds and lines and like the larger grand landscapes. But the floor of Joshua Tree is a lot more complex, but it's also a lot more sparse to where if you are using that wide angle shot that a lot of landscape photographers use for those grand landscapes, it's difficult to fit enough into the foreground to make it look like you know, it's grand and it was difficult to get away from that mindset of like, well, I got to find like a choya cactus to fit into this, to make it look that much more epic. When in reality, after a few days of being there, I got to the point of like, why, why try to fit that in there when this is what the landscape is? Like just work with what you're given, simplify the composition, simplify what you see, and then... After being there a few days, it became much more easy once you learned how that landscape worked. Instead of trying to fit that landscape into your photography style, you start to fit your photography into that landscape, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, it's like letting the landscape speak to you instead of like that. So, when I'm talking about not having a lot of preconceived ideas, so getting to a place and letting the place speak to you and have opportunities emerge as you explore, rather than having a lot of ideas. I think it's just every year with Fall Colors, it happens too. Like if, so say a hillside is partially green and partially yellow, and somebody's super disappointed because they had in mind that they wanted – the sea of gold. Well, there are different opportunities. So if you arrive with an open mind, I think that then you can say, well, this is a really interesting contrast because it shows the change of seasons, that you can accept what a landscape is sharing with you instead of being disappointed because you aren't getting what you expected. Nature is just too unpredictable and too chaotic, I think, to always approach it with expectations in mind because you like the the process that you're describing, like getting to the point where you're saying, like I'm seeing what the landscape is offering me, and then feeling more suited to photographing it after you've went through that process. I think that I hope that that resulted in a, a better experience than just like leaving and saying I didn't feel I never was able to make that work for me. Yeah, like that you were able to adapt to what you were seeing and then maybe see different opportunities.
0: Yeah. And this is a total, I mean, I I do this all the time is that I'm so used to shooting one place and then I go in with ideas, those ideas kind of crumble away. And then I, you know, pick myself back up off the ground and go out and tackle it again with a different mindset. And I think that the adaptation there is what a lot of beginning photographers need to learn and need to work with is going into a new scene seeing what it has to offer, adapt to the climate, adapt to the weather, adapt to the the compositions that are available there and work with it. Instead of working against it, you're going to have a much more enjoyable experience doing that.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really, really important point. Uh, So with my own photography, I think of that in terms of like, I love nature and I'm interested in photographing nature in all sorts of different ways. So having, A toolkit of interests. So I'm interested in small scenes. I'm interested in black and white. I'm interested in grand landscapes. Like by, by having that toolkit of skills, like I'm able to go into a landscape and adapt to what I'm being, what, what I'm seeing and what the weather is offering, what the light is offering. Um, So I think that point, your point about adaptation is really important.
0: Hey guys, real quick, I wanted to talk to you about the sponsor for today's episode, and that's visualwilderness.com. Visualwilderness.com is a website where you can go and actually become a better photographer. I know people say that all the time like, I'm going to help you improve your photography. This is a website with tons of resources, video content, blogs, articles, tons of stuff that you can get at your fingertips that are going to help you be a better photographer. I'm a contributor to that site and and you can go there right now and get 33% off all of my courses on post-processing when you use the code DAVID33. This is a limited offer. So go ahead and go to visualwilderness.com and use the code David33 on my courses. You can also get a yearly membership to that website and get all of their content included within that membership. If you want a link to how to do that, go to today's show notes where you're going to find links to everything me and Sarah are talking about right now. And you can go to com slash Merino, and you can find all of those links there. But right now, let's get back to the episode with Sarah. Is it is it fair to call you a leading advocate for nature photography? And before you answer, I want to add some uh synonyms for the word advocate, backer, defender, promoter, supporter, champion, uh, spokesperson. So is it fair to put that tag to you and do you enjoy having that tag?
1: I'd say that's a really hard question to answer because I don't... I just see myself as somebody who loves nature and enjoys photographing it and also feels like the nature photography community in some ways, is harming that very thing we love the most or that we profess or that we use for our photography. Uh, so I think in, I'm opinionated and I like sharing my opinions, but I don't necessarily like when I think of advoca- advocacy, so I come from the nonprofit world where there are advocacy organizations and people who have devoted their entire lives to advancing justice or helping people find opportunity or uh, conserving massive parts of the landscape. And those people, like, I, I don't compare in any way whatsoever to those people. So I think I I have a voice around nature photography, but I, I don't really consider myself an advocate. I think just because my experience in the nonprofit world that I see – I can think of a group of people in my mind and I'm nothing like those people. I wish I were, but I'm just not. So um, I think when I think of the people who, for instance, have dedicated their lives to conservation and conservation photography, I just do a very different kind of photography and a a smaller part of it is conservation. Uh, Now that I'm going to be a full-time nature photographer, I might have more time for that. But um, so I'd say probably not. I think that would probably be my answer.
0: Probably not that you wouldn't consider yourself one or that you don't like that tag.
1: Uh, That I don't consider myself one. Okay. Because for in many ways, nature photography has been an incredibly selfish pursuit for me. Like the reason that I started nature photography was because I needed an outlet from my really stressful job. Uh, I was doing work for an organization that was in, complete chaos. I was working with another person as interim directors to turn an organization around. And I was going to grad school full time and doing a lot of other things and needed nature photography as an outlet. And I still pursue nature photography for selfish reasons, not because I have a larger purpose around, say, conserving the landscape or communicating a message of conservation. I really do it because I need it for my mental health and just really enjoy the process of being outside and crafting a photograph. So since I'm starting from much more selfish motivations, I think that it's, that I would have to change my motivations and my purpose or broaden it to be, to really play the role of advocate.
0: How many people do you think are are doing nature photography just for the reason that you put out for mental health, for the enjoyment purposes?
1: I'd say probably – well, if you include people who are posting nature-related photos on Instagram, I'd say like 99.5% Okay,
0: <laughs> That's a large <laughs> with, group of people.
1: With some people who have a dual purpose uh, and then – a very small group of people who are driven by a larger cause. So uh, like when you look at the international league of conservation photographers, like their membership, those are people that I see as like, they're driven by the role or the motivation to bring a message about climate change or about wildlife, wildlife um, habitats that are being destroyed or land that is in need of conservation, or a public message around environmentalism, that those people are driven by that mission. And I think that I'd say there is a a pretty large group of photographers who have a dual purpose. And I would consider myself one of those people where I pursue nature photography primarily because I really enjoy it, but I also want to use my, or I hope that my photography encourages people to learn more about nature, to learn more about stewardship and conservation and potentially change their behaviors as a result. Um, But that's not my primary purpose. So I think there are a lot of people like me. And then I think there are just based on Instagram. Like when you look at Instagram culture and how people are using nature as a means to an end. um, And in some cases, destroying nature along the way without even thinking twice about it or intentionally doing things that are destructive. uh, That there's that full spectrum and that there are a lot of people that fall in the last group that I described either because they don't know better or because they don't care.
0: What, what is the nature first movement?
1: Uh, so I will, I have the webpage up so that I can describe it a little bit <laughs> Perfect. more accurately. Um, so the Nature First initiative started with about 10 photographers, all based in Colorado, and I was part of this group, uh, the founding group. And our goal was to develop a set of principles that would help help nature photographers en- enjoy the practice more responsibly and be better stewards practicing photography in a way that is more sustainable and has less impact on the places that we're visiting. So we came up with seven principles and uh, do you want me to go over the principles or just direct people to the
0: website? If you could read through them that would be awesome.
1: Yeah. So the the nature first Principles. There are seven of them. And you can read through all the details uh, at naturefirstphotography.org. And then there's a section for the principles, but I can go through the seven principles quickly, like just the the brief titles. So the first one is prioritize the well-being of nature over photography. The second one is educate yourself about the places you photograph. The third is reflect on the possible impact of your actions. Number four, use discretion if sharing locations. Number five is know and follow rules and regulations. Number six is always follow leave no trace principles and strive to leave places better than you found them. And number seven is actively promote and educate others about these
0: principles. Those... Our powerful principles. I, I know a lot has been said about sharing locations versus not sharing locations, but instead I want to hit on if somebody goes to a location and takes a photo and does share that photo, whether with a tagged location or not, how can they use these principles to be an ambassador to the location instead of just posting it for likes or comments?
1: Well, I th- I think the number one way is by using principle number seven by actively promoting and educating others about these principles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and my evolution, I will say a little bit about location sharing. Okay. Just because because I know a lot of people think I'm a total hypocrite on this topic, and I just want to describe my evolution.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so. A couple, like six or seven years ago, my husband and I co-authored two location guides, one on Iceland and one on Death Valley. And when I think about where I find my most, like where I feel my best, I think writing a location guide is such a perfect combination of my skills and my interests. So I like being a resourceful and helpful person. So I feel like helping others is one of the the important things about that that brings me joy in my life. I enjoy writing. I enjoy photography. And I feel like pulling together something like a location guide just brings together all of those things. So I really, like I could spend my entire life writing photography location guides and be completely fulfilled. That is also an incredibly naive position, uh, just based on my own experience, I think I I didn't realize how much impact sharing locations could have, and I had one really specific and di- and distressing experience when we were in Iceland that totally changed my mind about location sharing.
0: What um, was it?
1: So we were we had in our first edition of our Iceland ebook a location that was you you could hike out across some rocks to this field this really beautiful field of moss and low birches and there were tarns and beautiful rocks and then there were mountains in the background so it was this really wonderful place for nature photography but it's also some place that you aren't going to just 99% of people are not going to park on the side of the road and walk out to that location because you can't see anything from the road so unless you you're oriented towards exploring, which most people visiting Iceland just don't have the time to do, you're probably not going to go to that spot. So we walked out there a couple years later and the moss was completely damaged. Even though you can step on, you can stay on rocks, people were walking across the moss and destroying the moss. You could see tracks through the moss. um, And behind one tree was used toilet paper and just a pile of poop. And it's like it's the the idea that my the information that I shared led to the destruction of a place was just really, really distressing for me. So we got back from that trip and immediately changed the format of both of our location guides. Um, We took out whatever we considered to be a sensitive location. So if there wasn't an established trail or it wasn't pretty well known already, we took the place out of our guide. Um, And we have gotten to the point where we are pretty much going to stop selling both of them. I'm a little torn on the Death Valley one because there aren't really it doesn't have any sensitive spots and it's none of them are hidden uh, or what I would consider secret or less well-known places. Um, But just in general, like I was so naive about how people would use locate the location information that I was sharing. And it's not like we have sold hundreds of thousands of copies of these eBooks. Like we've sold a couple thousand copies of both of them, more of the Iceland book. But um, so we, But sharing that same location information in a forum like Instagram, it's immediately accessible to thousands and thousands of people. Mm -hmm. And that has a huge impact. So, when I think about just my little experience with our Iceland ebook and how I felt knowing that I had played a role in this place's destruction, it, it totally changed my thinking about sharing locations. So, in addition to probably discontinue We're for sure not going to be selling our Iceland ebook anymore, but possibly not our Death Valley ebook either. Uh, I've started now not sharing any information unless it's with a close friend who I know will treat it with respect. And when I post photos on Instagram or Facebook, I usually don't get more specific than like a broad region. Mm -hmm. So a national park, a national forest, a state, just because I feel like Like, that information can get so out of hand. And this came up recently in a Colorado Fall Colors group where somebody asked about the location of some curvy trees, which are now – they used to be totally off the beaten path. And now they're pretty well known. Uh, We drove by the spot last year, and all the grass is completely trampled around the trees uh, just because people want to get close and take selfies and and sit on the trees and do other things. And it's ruining that location. So it's like the thing that we say we love the most, which is nature, uh, we're destroying by photographing it without following some of these principles. So that was a really winding way to get to the point. Uh, but around when... So for my own practice, when I post on social media, especially... I don't provide location information anymore because it's so easy for it to get out of hand.
0: What do you say to people? I mean, obviously the first thing that comes to mind and I've gotten this reaction too in comments when I do not share a location or when somebody emails me, asks me for a location and the location is extremely fragile and can't be visited by several people. Or if that information gets out thousands of people, if it's that good of a location or if that many people want to see it, the one word that comes up most frequently is selfish. What mm-hmm. What do you say in response to that?
1: That I'm perfectly fine being selfish.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: so in many cases, so with my photography, most of the locations that, that we find, we either have looked at a map and just said, we want to try this trail, we have a guidebook, We've used that guidebook. We've done a lot of wandering on our own. Like I've, I don't ever ask other photographers for location information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, from my perspective, like I've earned all that information. I've done the research. I've done the miles on the trail. I've done a lot of driving around. You know, so you can do that too. <laughs> it, it, I, but I also don't seek out locations. So. I don't get as many emails about that kind of thing as other people do. Um, so I generally just, it, unless I know the person, I just say I don't share locations. I, I, I'm not going to share this location. I, I might say, here's a place to start your own research. But I, I guess I just don't feel like like having a stranger tell me I'm selfish because I'm not sharing information that I gained based on hours of my own time and effort. I guess that just doesn't make me feel bad.
0: Which isn't a bad thing.
1: <laughs> like, what do you do when you get those emails?
0: I mean, pretty much the same. I will I will respond and, and tell them, you know, basically all the things that you just described. And, you know, I went out and found this uh, on my own. It's a local spot or it's a spot that I heard of. From some other photographer who I respect and knows will take care of the landscape. Um, but it it can be a tricky spot, I think, whether you're willing to deal out that location or not. Um just because you know, some people very close to you that you know may not take great care of the location. And you still hold that location close to the vest and don't really share it. um, You know, it does damage relationships for some reason. And I've had experience in that. And it's very unfortunate. But at the same time, it it can be very necessary at times of protecting that place um, so that you know it can withstand not as many people trampling on it. Like you, like you sat around those trees or around the moss in Iceland. I think it, it deserves some deep thought from a lot of people about whether this location can withstand traffic or can it not? Because a lot of the famous locations that you can go to, most people are going to be extremely happy with the end result of the photographs from those places, and don't necessarily need the places that aren't well known or that can't withstand a lot of the tr- a lot of the foot traffic.
1: Yeah, it, and a lot of icons either have a trail to them or they are like right by a parking lot. So having a lot of people in those places isn't really doing a lot of damage. Whereas the, these trees that I was talking about, or the the mossy, the little mossy tarns. Like, those are places where, uh, say, 50 people a day or 20 people a day walking to them is actually destroying them. And I think that I didn't really think about – well, first, I think I I come to nature photography thinking about my impact. Like, if I'm going to go off trail, I'm going to make sure that I'm not doing it in a place where a bunch of other people are going to see me and then do the same thing, that it's in a place where I can – where I know I'm not doing much damage, that there probably aren't going to be that many more people behind me in a given year that I, I really think about my impact before I make the decision to go off trail uh, or to go explore in some place, like a place like death Valley where you're walking cross country over hard surfaces. Like that's a place where you really aren't doing much damage. If you're doing a bunch of exploring say the Colorado tundra where plants just don't grow that much in a given year like you really have to think is what I'm doing right now worth it for a photograph and so I come to photography thinking that's one of my first thoughts when I decide to step off a trail or off of a road Uh, I think that mindset is becoming more and more rare that it is about the shot like getting the shot and that that's where it becomes a problem. That's why the issue happened in Iceland. Because if people were more concerned about preserving the mosses, they would have walked on the rocks. But I think most people were just like, I'm here to get the photograph. And I'm just going to walk wherever I want to walk. And that's fine if it's one person a month or one person a week. But when it's like the these trees that I'm talking about, they, the location was shared in this Facebook group. Um, so... That's 1,500 people that now have this information. And if a couple hundred of them visit that spot and walk out into the grasses, walk around the trees, they park on the road, other people see them parked on the road and stop, like that place is actually being destroyed because that information was shared. So really thinking about that implication that if if you love nature and you love the places you're photographing, but feel like location sharing is innocent, like when you actually think about the chain of events that can happen just because one bit of information was posted online, the damage is real for a lot of places. And I think going through that process of saying, well, I'm sharing information about an iconic location, that's not going to cause much harm, versus sharing information about a place that's off the beaten path, that's really sensitive to traffic, that is unique enough that it will draw people like that's the kind of decision making process that I go through. And then I say, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to draw more people to this place. So yes, I photographed those curvy trees a couple of years ago when it was still off the the radar. And I have that, and I think I have a photo of it on my website. So in some ways it's like, yeah, I, I was able to get it, but you can't have that information. I totally understand how people see that. But nature photography was also different five years ago. There just weren't as many people doing it, and people came to it through a different path, like getting a hiking guide and learning about stewardship practices before you even hit the trail, versus seeing a photo on Instagram and saying, I want to see that place without that basis of knowledge. Like it's five years has changed this community a lot, and it's just changed the dynamic and the impact around sharing locations. So, from my perspective, we really, and using the nature first discussion as a basis, like really thinking about the impact of your actions related to sharing locations. And if you decide to even take those photographs in the first place because of your potential impact, like that, the more of us that do that, the less damage we as a community are doing to nature.
0: I will say, too on the back end of that is you find out pretty quickly whether this means something to you or not when you're out in nature and whether that rings true for you or not, it's neither good or bad. Like if you stick to those more pronounced classic popular locations with a parking lot, fantastic. If you like to go out off the beaten trail and find those locations that are hard to find, that's awesome too. But if you're out and the thought comes to mind of ruining a location or even something as simple as breaking off a tree limb just so that it's not into your composition and that, that rings as a problem to you when that thought crosses your mind, you probably know pretty quick whether or not you care enough about the location to preserve it or you're just doing it for the photograph
1: yeah and I, I you can see this play out on instagram like when the public lands hate you account calls people out sometimes they a lot of people's response is to block and to leave the photos up and to not change captions versus people who uh, like, I just saw a post recently. I think it was about somebody who had a, had taken some photos in a field of wildflowers. And the person responded by saying, first, I'm going to take the photos down. I didn't realize that walking out into a field of flowers, like that I'm creating a path that others will follow and the flowers won't grow there in future years. Like I had no idea. And now I'm going to share that information with my audience. Like those two diametrically opposed responses like i feel like the more people that did the latter who said i didn't know and now i'm going to use my platform to help encourage other people to to just behave as better stewards of nature like we need more of that but when you have the like the culture of instagram i think there is an undercurrent on instagram that goes so that's so diametrically opposed to these principles where nature is really nothing more than a means to an end. And for those people, I wish companies would stop working with them. Like the the, the company brands would say, unless you follow these principles and are an advocate for them, we're not sponsoring you. Uh, because that would be what I think one of the only ways to get through to the influencer type who really doesn't care about, like they just want the photos to get To get traffic to their profile, and that nature is the means to to accomplish that. Um, And they they're willing to break regulations. They're willing to go on private property. They'll use drones in national parks. They'll trample wildflowers like it doesn't matter because they don't. That all they want is that photograph. That those are the people that I feel like companies and sponsors could maybe have an impact with. I think generally people who don't know are open to learning about this. If, if they're educated in a way that isn't shaming them and is about teaching, like helping people be better, not about canceling them, which is uh, so popular in our culture these days. Uh, I don't think like people who have one transgression, like they, they've done something that's in opposition of these principles. Like I don't think they should be shamed off Instagram or shamed off Facebook, but, uh, but have an opportunity to just consider these principles for their own photography and think if, and maybe think differently about how they behave in nature.
0: What it's are really, some of,
1: oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, what are some of the success stories that you've seen since launch of the nature first movement?
1: I think one of the main things that I've seen is people talking about these things more. So uh, the seventh principle around actively promoting and educating others about these principles that I've seen more people writing captions that include information about a place, like take Canyon Land, uh, not Canyon Lands, the park, but just Canyon areas in Utah that have cryptobiotic soil that you're not supposed to walk on because it takes so many years to regenerate. That I've seen posts with people talking about that kind of thing way more frequently. Than say a couple of years ago, so I think that's just one little tiny example. Or the discussion around these curvy trees in the Fall Colors Forum. I think more people are speaking up about like about this issue and their perspective on it. So I f- I feel like that that. The idea of using your platform for good and to share information. Uh, Phil Monson, he would be another example. He has a really hilarious set of Instagram stories that where he makes hunt. He he has this persona, litter hunter, where he he develops these group or these gatherings to clean up trash in places like he's somebody who I think really exemplifies these principles where he's using his photography as a platform for encouraging people to pick up litter and people tag and Ben Horn has been doing the same thing and people constantly tag Ben and Phil because they're picking up litter when they're hiking on a trail so I think those are they 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 aren't doing it because of nature first, but I think they're embodying these principles in a really positive way where they're picking up litter and trash. They're sharing that, encouraging other people to do that. And then other people are picking up trash when they're out hiking. So that's a, a, a really a small action that's had a big impact. And I think it's a great example of how an individual photographer can embody these principles and can actually spur people to change their own behavior in a positive way.
0: I will share a story. Um, You know, my wife is not nature related at all. She hikes with me occasionally, does not camp, probably couldn't care less about any photography topic or photo that I've taken. I mean, she's supportive of of me, of course. But um, (laughs) if I describe a photo to her, she's just like, "Okay, looks cool. Let's move on. Um, (laughs) But since I've been involved in nature first and kind of following the principles and trying to share location or share information on places and what makes it fragile since then, even on vacation, walking on the beach, she will go down the beach and pick up trash as she goes, just from shared information or even getting on the nature first website and like reading about it and seeing what it's about. Not only that, If we do like an Airbnb experience and go out with a guide somewhere and like do something fun, there have been times where she will even share some of the seven principles or share that they should go on the website and start teaching people who come on their experiences, some of those principles and sharing that information so even people who aren't involved in photography are, are in turn doing things like that. And I mean, e- even things like that, like you've mentioned Instagram a couple times, Sarah, of examples of bad and good. How can people use Instagram responsibly and better to help promote places?
1: I think uh, being really careful about hashtags so if you do include hashtags, use them responsibly. Uh, know that that your photo, like tagging your photo with a really specific location could potentially increase the traffic to it substantially, like well beyond what you could ever imagine. Uh, so tagging responsibly, using the caption to educate people about the uh, maybe the sensitivities of a place or... Like if you did go off trail, like how you make the decision about when it's appropriate to go off trail or when you maybe made a decision not to because you knew that it would have an impact and you didn't feel comfortable with that impact. Or if you had a bad experience, how you might have educated somebody about these principles um, in a way that came up positively. Like it, if you saw somebody doing something like that was breaking rules or, uh, was in opposition to some of these principles. If you had a conversation with them that changed somebody's mind, uh, I've seen people talking about that a lot. Like that they're sharing these principles more actively when out in the field with others. Uh, if you're a workshop leader talking about how you're educating your students about these ideas, uh, just really bringing stewardship of nature to the forefront of your of how you talk about your photos. I think is the, the bottom line. So educating people about the locations uh, in a way that might help them understand how to steward those places better, being really thoughtful about how much location information you're sharing, and then really using the platform to advance some of these ideas, I think would and, be some basics.
0: And this is platforms across the board. This isn't just Instagram.
1: Right. So th- I think it's both in-person platforms, like if you're standing in front of a group of people teaching them or uh, presenting a photo at a photo club, you can talk about these things. Uh, and then Facebook, Instagram, if you if you write a blog, if you share travel information, uh, that there are places where you can insert this kind of information without it feeling like you're lecturing or you're judging people or shaming people. From my perspective, I think People who are open to receiving this information are going to be most receptive when it's shared in a positive and encouraging way. Uh, And I also just don't have the personality where I'm comfortable at all, like, shaming a person that I don't know. So from my perspective, I've I've been trying to take a more positive approach. Uh, just because that fits better with who I am Uh, the accounts like the public lands hate you that I mentioned I think in some ways has been effective because he's willing to totally call people out Uh, but that's just not my style so from my perspective from my own practices being positive and encouraging and having a more educational message is what fits best for me
0: All right, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, talking with us about your style of photography, your workflow, and a meaty discussion on Nature First Principles.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate being on and I wish you the best as you uh, relaunch your podcast. So congratulations on doing that. And again, thanks so much for, for this conversation. I really enjoyed it.